1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Downside History. We're about Tudor Queens. Tudor Queens is a hot topic. Not only do we know about the extraordinary Lady Margaret Beaufort, Henry VII's mother, the matriarch of the Tudor dynasty, and hugely important in steering her son towards the throne. Then we get the brilliant Elizabeth of York, who Henry VII's beloved wife, Henry VIII's mother. We don't hear enough about those two because they're all overshadowed by Henry VIII's queens, his six wives, and then Mary Tudor and her sister Elizabeth, who are both hugely prominent on the kings and queen lists of English history. And then many people have heard of Mary, Queen of Scots? An unfortunate Tudor. Executed by her cousin. What about that Tudor queen who we don't hear too much about at all? Lady Jane Grey. Proclaimed queen, ruled, if you can say that, for nine days, and then was executed when her cousin Mary was swept to the throne instead of her. Lady Jane Grey is a deeply tragic figure in English history and a fascinating figure. She paid with her life for the machinations of others around her who sought to rule through her, to exercise their influence through her, with her safely installed on the throne. This is an episode of my pod which features Susanna Lipscomb's brilliant Not Just the Tudors pod, in which she talks all about Lady Jane Grey. Susanna is interviewing the brilliant Nicola Tallis for this episode, who I've had on the podcast talking about Margaret Beaufort. So Nicola Tallis is an expert in East Tudor Queens, as they both are. So it's great to hear this conversation. It's great to share it on this podcast. If you want to listen to previous episodes of this podcast without the ads, so for example, listen to Nicola Tallis talking about Margaret Beaufort, or Susanna Lipscomb talking about many things, you can go to historyhit.tv. History Hit TV is Netflix for history, we've got video on there, we've got audio, we've got audiobooks, we've got everything on there, all the podcasts. Please go to historyhit.tv and for the price of a pint of beer every month you get access to the world's best history channel. Lots of people on there watching our World War II documentary at the moment, we've got another episode of Ray Mears' prehistoric documentary series coming out this week, so it's all happening at historyhit.tv. Go and subscribe straight away. Well, just listen to this episode first. It's not just The Tudors with Susanna Lipscomb and Nicola Tallis. Enjoy
2: nicola welcome to not just the tudors it is lovely to talk to you in what i hope will be the first of many chats because you've written so many wonderful books but this chat today is about lady jane gray and you make a point in your book that i am always banging on about (laughs) which is that to call jane the nine days queen is our first
3: mistake Why do you think that is? First of all, thank you very much for having me. It's a huge pleasure to be able to talk to you about Jane. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I think there are so many misconceptions about Jane and that is the classic one, that she was Queen for just nine days. And as you say, it's my belief that she should be known as the 13-day Queen, which not quite so catchy, admittedly. But this is because in my view, it's very clear that Jane became Queen On the 6th of July, the day that Edward VI died, 1553, most people date her reign from the 10th of July, which is when she was publicly proclaimed Queen at the Tower of London. But actually, she had been a Queen for four days prior to this. It's just that this was all done privately and behind closed walls.
2: I think Queen for 13 has a certain ring about (laughs) it. I think we could try and get that to catch on. Certainly unlucky, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So, introduce us to Queen Jane, Lady Jane Grey. Tell us maybe about her parents and what we know, and also what we don't know of her before 1553.
3: Well, Jane was an extraordinary young woman who deserves to be better known, in my opinion. She was probably born in the latter half of 1536, although. We don't know exactly when she was born, which wasn't unusual in a time when dates and times of birth often went unrecorded, particularly of girls. We do know that Jane was the eldest daughter of Henry Grey, 3rd Marquess of Dorset. Nothing particularly remarkable about him, it has to be said. And his wife, Lady Frances Brandon who was a bit more remarkable in that she was the daughter of Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary, by her husband, Charles Brandon. So it was through her mother, Frances, that Jane had drops of royal blood in her veins. And she was the eldest of three daughters. So she had two younger sisters, Catherine, who was reported to be the beauty of the family, and Mary, who some contemporaries suggest suffered from some kind of deformity that may possibly have been kyphosis. But of these daughters, Jane was certainly the most remarkable in terms of her intellect. And she was raised primarily at Bradgate Park, which was her parents' Leicestershire seat, so just five miles outside of the city of Leicester. Unfortunately, the house is now in ruins, but it's still well worth a visit and the landscape there is still spectacular and much as it would have been in the greys' time. And it was here that Jane was primarily raised with her sisters. Now, although her parents didn't have any sons, this seems to have heightened their ambitions for their daughters and they invested heavily in their education. But it seems that it was Jane who benefited the most from this. Her father, Henry Gray, was also well known for his intellect and his academic interests. And therefore, I suppose it's only reasonable that he would want to ensure his daughters were educated as befitted their status. And we know that Jane was taught by John Elmer who was an advocate of religious reform, as were Jane's parents, actually. So at Bradgate, the seeds of Jane's interest in religious reform were really sown. She becomes a part of this circle who have this leaning towards reform and Protestantism. And this is something that as Jane grows, she becomes increasingly immersed in and increasingly fervent about and we know that Jane really relished her education. She took great pleasure in the pages of books. We know that she read Plato, a contemporary Sir Thomas Chaloner, who may have known Jane, but certainly knew members of her family, later remarked that she was supposed to have been able to speak eight languages, which is exceptional. And we know that she later began learning Hebrew at her own request, which was, again, really extraordinary. So she was a young woman who was extremely precocious, extremely intelligent, and who really took advantage of the academic opportunities that were presented to her and was certainly showing great promise in terms of her intellectual abilities.
2: I remember the story of a visitor. Was it Roger Askham to Bradgate Park saying that he'd come across Jane reading Plato in Greek whilst the rest of the family was out hunting? And this is a sort of indication of her taking great pleasure in this volume as if it was a copy of something like Boccaccio. It was a great collection of stories. So she clearly was very bright.
3: Yes, very bright, but somebody who also... I think, recognised her own abilities. I think she knew that she was intelligent. And certainly, what always strikes me as being quite extraordinary is the fact that in an age in which women aren't always predominant in the sources, as we know, people were taking the time to write about Jane and her extraordinary academic ability and I just think that this is extraordinary given that she wasn't one of Henry VIII's daughters and so it wasn't as present in the same manner as Mary and Elizabeth. She was a young girl living in distant Leicestershire far away from the court and yet people were writing about how intelligent she was Yes, because I think we might imagine that
2: there would be a tendency with hindsight to rewrite the story and to make her into this blue stocking or to make her exceptional in some ways because of what later happens to her. But in practice, we've got several different sources corroborating this point. So it clearly was something notable about her that made people write this down.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And even Elizabeth's tutor, who you've already mentioned, Roger Asham, he remarks upon the fact that Jane, in his opinion, was even more academically gifted than his own pupil, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is, of course, famous for her scholarly abilities. So I think that this just really pinpoints just how extraordinary Jane was.
2: Now, tell me about the relationship between Jane and Henry VIII's sixth wife. When does she leave Bradgate Park and spend time with Catherine Parr?
3: Well, she left Bradgate shortly after the death of Henry VIII. So Henry VIII, of course, dies in January 1547. And the following month, February, Jane's wardship is bought by Thomas Seymour, who is the uncle of Edward VI, the nine-year-old king. And Seymour had recognised Jane's value... He realised that aside from the king's daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, Jane was one of the most important youngsters in the land, and he was determined to obtain her wardship. And he did this by offering her parents a loan of £2,000, knowing that they were often in debt. The daughters were very poor with money. So he acquired Jane's wardship, and Jane came to live with him at Seymour Place in London. And then later that year, Seymour contracts this clandestine marriage with Catherine Parr, of course, Henry VIII's widow. And we don't know exactly how much time Jane came to spend with Catherine. We do know that she accompanied the couple the following year when Catherine and Seymour left London for Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire to await the outcome of Catherine's first pregnancy We know that Jane was with them then, or we know that she spent time with Catherine then. And I think it's highly likely that Catherine would have had an extremely positive impact on Jane in terms of certainly her education, because Catherine was also a great advocate of female education and well-educated herself, But also on shaping Jane's religious beliefs, because, again, Catherine was a huge advocate of religious reform and was surrounded by people with similar views. So I don't think any of this would have been lost on Jane and would have had a huge impact on shaping her.
2: That pregnancy of Catherine's ended with the birth of a daughter, but it led to Catherine's death.
3: And what happened to Jane after that point? Jane was left to assume the role of chief mourner at Catherine's funeral, which must have been quite difficult for her, given she was about 12 years old at this time. And after that, in his own words, Seymour was so amazed with grief by the death of his wife that initially he decided to send Jane home to her parents at Bradgate Park. And so that's what happens is Jane goes home to her parents But it isn't long before Seymour realises that he's made a mistake in allowing his precious ward to go. And we see this almost tug of war over Jane's custody, because initially Jane's parents were reluctant to send their daughter back into Seymour's keeping. But eventually, after some persuasion, after some more money has changed hands, they do send Jane back into Seymour's keeping. But it is of short duration because... In March 1549, just six months after Catherine Parr's death, Seymour was executed and thus Jane was permanently deprived of her guardian.
2: In the light of the evidence about his, at best, inappropriate behaviour towards the young Elizabeth, who was, what, perhaps three years older than Jane, what do you make of Seymour's desire to have Jane return to him?
3: It's very difficult because there's no suggestion that he behaved inappropriately towards Jane. And in one of Jane's extant letters to Seymour, she refers to the fact that he's always been a kind and loving father to her. I think that his desire to have Jane with him was basically a play for power in some ways, because I think he did hope that he could Organized Jane's marriage to his nephew, King Edward, which would put him in a powerful position. But I think, really, after Catherine Parr's death, Seymour became increasingly erratic and wasn't thinking clearly at all, particularly about where Jane fell into his plans. And I think at this point, she becomes a pawn in some ways in Seymour's games.
2: You mentioned a couple of times her interest in reform and in Protestantism and the fact that we've got people like Catherine Parr and indeed her parents who are influences in that regard. But what actual evidence do we have of Jane's own faith?
3: Well, it's quite interesting because in 1551, she struck up a correspondence with Heinrich Bullinger, one of the most noted Protestant theologians of the day. And we've got three of her letters that survived, that were written to Bullinger, possibly the only three that were ever written. But in these letters, we do get a really clear picture of the way in which her faith was developing and also of the influence that Bullinger had on her. I think she already at this point had a very strong sense of morality. I think she wanted very much to be seen as a pious, sober, Protestant princess in the same manner that her cousin Elizabeth was framing herself to be. And what really strikes me again with this correspondence with Bullinger is how much of an influence he had on her. Because we know that when she, in the same manner, I suppose, as many other teenage girls, she began to show a great interest in clothes, for example. And at some point, I think John Aylmer talks about the fact that she was neglecting her studies and spending too much time playing music. And he'd sought advice from Bullinger about this and how to handle this. And Bullinger had clearly, unfortunately, we don't have his letters to Jane any longer. But from her responses, it's clear that Bullinger had written to Jane and basically told her that she needed to knuckle down with her studies. And I find it really extraordinary that this theologian who she's never met, who's living on the continent abroad, had such an impact on her that she listened to him. And she did then focus on her studies. She did then start to get a real grounding in her faith. And like I said, I think it's at this point she starts to really model herself as being this very pious, very sober advocate of Protestantism. So we've got quite a good sense of her
2: character. Unusually, actually, when we're talking about women at this time, one of the things we haven't mentioned is her appearance. And part of the problem, I suppose, is that we have a question when it comes to portraits of Lady Jane Grey. Yeah. Do any of them seem convincing to you? And what do you think she looked like, really?
3: Yeah, there are so many portraits, like you say, that have purported to be Jane. I personally don't think that we can truly say that any of them are Jane. We know, obviously, that there were portraits of Jane painted within her lifetime. Bess of Hardwick, for example, had one that she kept by her bed throughout her life. But we don't know exactly what happened to that. And we don't even know for sure exactly what she looked like because there aren't really very many contemporary descriptions of her, or certainly not any that are particularly detailed. I think it's the French ambassador at one point that says that she was quite handsome, but that doesn't give us a great deal to go on. (laughs) So it's very, very difficult. And I think how can we possibly say that any of these portraits are Jane or could potentially be Jane when we don't really know exactly what she looked like?
2: Mm. So we've got through to 1549. What happens over the subsequent four years for Jane?
3: I suppose this is the quiet period in Jane's life because she was basically continuing with her education and her studies at this time. In 1551, her father was created Duke of Suffolk. And at this point, her family largely relocate to London They already had a house in London, Dorset House, but they also take up residence at the Charter House in Sheen. It's there in 1552 that Jane's mother, Frances, falls ill of the sweating sickness, so ill that they think that she may potentially die, but she doesn't. So a lot of this time is spent perhaps with the occasional visit to court, but largely just continuing with her studies and I imagine that actually it was one of the happiest times of Jane's life.
2: Meanwhile, Edward, who is on the throne of England, who, unlike what we're often told, was actually pretty robust health before this point, fell seriously ill in April 1552, measles and smallpox, recovers, perhaps it suppresses his immune system, things that we're thinking about a lot now these days. And then in the subsequent year, February March gets ill again. And by April, it looks like he seems to be well again. And a major event happened in Jane's life in that April, in that she
3: gets married. Tell us how that came about. So the marriage of Jane came about through the auspices of Edward's chief advisor, the Duke of Northumberland, who proposed that she should marry his fourth son, Guildford Dudley, And at that time, the suggestion of the marriage was very much with what may come in the future in mind. And it was an attempt to secure the bonds of allegiance for what lay ahead. But there are many suggestions in the sources that not only Jane hated the idea of this marriage, but also her mother, Frances, one Chronicler reports that she was vigorously opposed to it and I think it's very easy to understand why because Jane did come from a family with close links to the royal family and the throne and she had been raised with possible expectations that she may be married to King Edward and thus become his consort but certainly that she could expect a very advantageous match and so I think the realisation that She wasn't going to be able to marry Edward because he was in poor health, must have come as a blow, certainly to Jane's parents. But the idea that she would be married to the son of a duke, I mean, not even the eldest son of a duke, but the fourth son of a duke. I mean, I think that must have been a really bitter pill for the greys to swallow. And you can understand, I think, why Francis Brandon may not have been too keen on that. But the sources say that Henry Gray was convinced by Northumberland that this marriage was a good idea. And so it duly took place on the 25th of May at Durham Place, which was Northumberland's townhouse on the Strand. And it was a very grand and a very lavish occasion. So the wedding clothes had all been paid for by Edward VI, who was unfortunately too poorly to attend by this point. But he'd also sent gifts of jewels as well to the young couple, We've got a warrant which shows that there were two masks that were performed. The French ambassadors were invited. It was a really, really lavish occasion. Only marred, I suppose, in some ways by, first of all, Jane's reluctance. She wasn't happy about this marriage at all, but recognised that it was her duty to be obedient to her parents. And also by the fact that several of the guests, including Guildford Dudley, managed to contract food poisoning as a result of apparently a poorly prepared salad by one of the chefs. So I think for more reasons than one, the observation of a contemporary that this marriage was judged to be the first act of a tragedy is very accurate.
2: Yes, that's very interesting because that would have seemed inauspicious at the time, one imagines So at this point, we ought to pause and consider Jane's claim to the throne. Can you explain it to us?
3: Of course. By the terms of Henry VIII's will, he was to be succeeded by his son Edward. If Edward were to die childless, then he should be succeeded first by Henry VIII's eldest daughter, Mary. And if she were to have no children, then by his younger daughter, Elizabeth. But crucially, both of these girls, Mary and Elizabeth, had been declared illegitimate within Henry's lifetime and neither had been legitimated, although they'd been restored to their place in the succession. If none of Henry VIII's children were to produce children of their own, then Henry decreed that the line of his elder sister, Margaret, Queen of Scots, was to be struck out and instead the next heirs should be the children of his Younger sister, Mary. So, if this was to happen, then technically the next in line should have been Francis, Jane's mother. But Henry overlooked her. And there have been lots of debates as to why this may have been. My own feeling is that Henry didn't have a particularly high opinion of Henry Grey. But in any case, Henry had then ordered that the next in line should be the heirs of Francis in which case Jane was the first of these. So that's where her claim to the throne comes in. It's been set up by her great-uncle, Henry VIII, but nobody really expects Jane to come to prominence in that way. So
2: at some point in that spring, perhaps when he was ill but not apparently dying, Edward does something dramatic, which is that he writes his device for the succession. Tell us about the device.
3: Yeah, so it's a really, really extraordinary document all drawn up in Edward's own hand. And again, there's been a lot of debate over how much of this was done under Edward's own auspices and how much he was influenced by Northumberland. Again, my own feeling is that Edward had more of a hand in it than he has perhaps been given credit for, if that's the right terminology. But in this device... Edward cuts out both of his half sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, basically because he had spent the entirety of his reign campaigning really to stamp Protestantism firmly into his reign and onto his subjects. And he didn't want to give his Catholic half sister Mary the chance to undo what he saw as all of his good work in the cause of religion. But he recognised that he couldn't exclude one half sister without also excluding the other. So both Mary and Elizabeth are excluded on the grounds of their previous illegitimacy. And instead, to begin with, he orders that the throne should pass to the heirs male of his cousin, Lady Jane Grey, but it very soon becomes clear that actually Edward isn't going to live long enough for Jane to produce any heirs male or any heirs at all. And so, with the stroke of his pen, he inserts two words so that his will reads that the throne will pass to Lady Jane and her heirs male. And this is how Jane goes from being third to first in line to the throne.
1: you listen to Dan Snow's History, we're talking about Lady Jane Grey, who ruled for a poultry nine days. More after this.
2: I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: And so this is about religion, you think, chiefly. I suppose there's a question about how much this is also about legitimacy, whether he thinks that Mary and Elizabeth are not lawfully begotten, to use the language of the time, and about trying to choose the suitable person as well, I suppose.
3: Yes, exactly. My own feeling is that religion was the primary consideration for Edward because he was reported to be extremely zealous in the cause of Protestantism. And I think that he also recognised this in his cousin, Jane, which was one of the reasons why he thought that she would be a suitable candidate as his successor. Because even though Elizabeth was Protestant, she was never really noted for her piety and for her zeal, certainly not in the same way as Edward and Jane. And of course, Edward's intention to make Jane his heir was wholeheartedly supported and encouraged by Northumberland, who now has the perfect incentive, really, to set Jane upon the throne, because by now, of course, Jane is married to his son, Guildford.
2: But crucially, it doesn't just have the support of Northumberland. It has the support of pretty much the whole establishment at the time. And this is the thing, I think, that we forget about this. This isn't just the will of a dying teenager, All of the nobility and key members of the government at the time back Edward's decision.
3: That's it, exactly. So everybody goes along with it. Some of the councillors may not necessarily have been happy with that decision or not happy in any case that unfortunately the device, there wasn't enough time to have it passed through Parliament. But they do support the King's decision. And I think that this is instrumental and key in understanding why Jane ought to be recognised as a Queen of England. She has been overlooked for so long, but actually she was recognised and accepted by Edward's council, who determined to support her claim to the throne. And that's really important.
2: We'll come back later to the question of whether you think she was legally Queen, but let's fast forward to the 6th of July, 1553, Edward died. Yes. So by the terms of the device, she had been named as his successor. And as we've said, the great officers of state have put their signature to this as well. So how did Jane learn she was now queen? And do you think she was forced into becoming queen?
3: So, Jane was taken to Sion House, which was Northumberland's home on the outskirts of London, still there, of course, still the home of the Dukes of Northumberland to this day. She was taken there on the 6th of July, so the same day as Edward's death. And tradition says that she was taken to the Long Gallery, although we don't know. But she was taken somewhere in the house anyway, and she was informed then that the king had died and that he had named her as his heir. And all of the sources agree that she was utterly distraught at this news. She completely broke down and she was overcome by grief at the death of her cousin, but also with the enormity of what had been inflicted on her, I suppose, or imposed on her, But eventually, she does manage to calm herself down. And although she didn't want to be queen, she accepted what had been thrust upon her. And I think she was determined to make the best of the situation. She recognised that the king had named her as his heir. This had been done for a reason. And from this moment, she was going to continue with Edward's good work. And she was queen of England.
2: So she ends up, of course, being a queen for a very short period of time. But in those 13 days, did
3: she demonstrate
2: her capacity for queenship, do you think?
3: I think so, definitely. I think, again, another common misconception is that Jane was a puppet who was manipulated. And certainly there are instances of this happening that we see very clearly. But I think even though Jane didn't want to be queen, she had accepted that this was what she believed that God had ordained her to do. And so she was determined to assert her authority. And we see this in several instances. So after Jane's arrival at the Tower of London on the 10th of July, a letter arrives that evening from her cousin Mary, who is determined not to submit meekly to Jane's queenship and is determined to fight for what she believes to be her birthright. And The contemporary reports say that Jane's mother and her mother-in-law broke down in tears, lamenting this fact. But it's at this point that Jane really shows her authority and she begins issuing a number of proclamations which are sent out across the realm ordering her subjects to rally to her banner and to support her claim to be Queen. And I think also Northumberland had expected her to be very pliable, And again, there are reports which suggest that she refused to bow to Northumberland's demands that she make her husband, Guildford, king, and instead said that she'd concede that she'd make him a duke, but that she would only make him king if that was what was decided by Parliament. So I think that there are instances where she really does show that she's not prepared to be bullied and that... She's going to have her own voice. One of the
2: most moving manuscripts I've ever looked at, actually, is one of her letters from the 18th of July, one of the ones at the Inner Temple, where she talks about her right to be queen. She talks about this most lawful possession of the crown with the free consent of the nobility of our realm. You know, at the top it says, Jane, the Queen, Q. U E N E and it's just marvelously moving because that's her signature at the top there yeah. and in sort of very simple italic hand knowing that this doesn't last for any period of time it's quite a poignant document mm. did you feel that with the letters and manuscripts you've looked at
3: absolutely and one of the most striking documents that I came across, actually, it was an inventory of jewels that were delivered to Jane in the Tower while she was Queen. Unfortunately, they weren't jewels that were fit for a Queen at all. They were jewels that were in very poor repair. It was almost like they'd just been thrown together from what was left over, if you like. They certainly weren't royal jewels. They were broken. It was just like a cobbled together collection of bits and pieces, really. Nothing particularly grand. But Jane had signed her name to confirm that she had received these jewels. So signed at the top, again, Jane the Queen. And later on, an unspecified date, somebody had very deliberately scrubbed out the Queen part. So again, that was something quite tangible and quite Poignant, I found when I was researching that people really didn't waste any time, I don't think, in defiling Jane's claim and in making clear their belief that she didn't deserve recognition as Queen. But that was really quite moving.
2: It's probably worth having a pause at this point to think about the sources that we have the events of 1553 in particular, and the extent to which they are a question of history being written by the victors. What do you make of the sources available to us?
3: They're quite patchy. They're of varying quality. One of the sources that I find most interesting, although certainly very biased, is the reports of the imperial ambassadors at the time. And Again, there's this other misconception that Jane's reign was doomed to failure from the start, and certainly she wasn't very popular with her subjects. Nothing personal, but she hadn't been raised in the same manner as Mary and Elizabeth, and everybody wanted Mary to be queen. Mary was really very popular. But I think from the reports of the Imperial Ambassador, we can see just how tenuous Mary's situation and her circumstances were at this time, it's really interesting. There are almost daily reports. And at one point, the imperial ambassadors were even urging Mary to flee from the country because they believed very much that the odds were stacked in Jane's favour. And then you see very gradually as time progresses between the 10th and the 19th of July, how The tide is turning and things are beginning very much to shift in Mary's favour. And it's quite interesting, I think, seeing that play out in the sources as support for Mary becomes greater. And it's the imperial ambassador who thinks
2: that it is Northumberland's doing, I guess, in part. He's right, and in part, yeah, he just doesn't really want to ascribe too much agency to either a teenage king or now a teenage queen because it feels like it's such a tremendous coup against the Catholic Mary that there has to be some grand plan underpinning it, perhaps.
3: Absolutely, and I think also there is this long-standing enmity between Northumberland and Mary. Mary utterly loathes Northumberland, and. I think also it's quite telling that when Mary does eventually win her claim to the throne and she is declared queen on the 19th of July, I think it's quite telling that Northumberland is one of the very few to be punished by death and that Mary is merciful to the majority of other people. So, yeah, I think Northumberland, in many ways, I think he's an easy scapegoat as well. So 10 days after
2: being told she was Queen, Jane was told that she was not. As you say, on the 19th of July, the council has acknowledged her as Queen and on the 20th, Northumberland did. So do you think Jane was really Queen and do you think she was legally and rightfully Queen?
3: I definitely think that she was Queen. It can be argued, of course, and it is true to say that because Edward's device was never passed through Parliament, it was illegal. But I think the fact that Jane was recognised as Queen by Edward's council, albeit for a short time, I do think that this deems her worthy of being Queen. She certainly had a legitimate claim to be Queen. There was no taint of illegitimacy attached to her throughout the course of her life in the same way that Mary and Elizabeth did, rightly or wrongly. So, I certainly think that she does deserve to be recognised as Queen. Legally, it's a bit more tenuous, but I'm going to say because of you know, the support of Edward's Council, yes.
2: So, you're one of those who thinks we should have Queen Jane I on our ruler of rulers?
3: I definitely do. Yeah, she does start to appear now, I've noticed.
2: Yeah, English Heritage have her on some tea towels. I, I was wondering. Wait
3: to know. Yeah. <laughs> So
2: Jane remained at the Tower, where she had gone to await her coronation, but was now a prisoner, until several months later, on the 13th of November, 1553, she had her trial. What happened at the trial?
3: Yeah, so the trial took place at London's Guildhall. She was tried alongside her husband and several others, including Thomas Cranmer, and the transcript of the trial still survives in the National Archives. It's in Latin, but it's a really extraordinary document. And again, when I was studying that, you do just get this real tangible sense. Of Jane and how she must have felt at that time. I mean, let's not forget, she was a teenage girl standing trial for treason for her life. And the contemporary reports talk about how she'd walked the mile from the tower to Guildhall, her head down in her prayer book. So, again, I think her faith was of the utmost importance to her at this point. And she pleaded guilty, as did her husband, and so that meant that the sentence was inevitable. Jane became the youngest royal woman to be condemned for treason, and this meant that she was condemned to a traitor's death, which in her case was to be burned or beheaded at the Queen's pleasure. So I think... Even though in many respects she believed that the trial was a formality because Mary had made it clear that she intended to show mercy and show clemency to Jane and her husband, I still think that the enormity of this must have really struck doom into Jane's heart and must have been difficult to comprehend.
2: Yes, it's interesting that we've got the account in Latin. Presumably the proceedings were carried out in English, although of course I'm struck by the fact that had it been in Latin, she would have been fine anyway and able to acquit herself. But given that she confessed, why didn't Mary pardon her? Because that would have been a sort of fairly normal response to a declaration of guilt in one so young.
3: I think Mary was under huge pressure, particularly from the imperial ambassador, to have Jane executed. And At the end of the day, they were family. Mary had always had a very, very close relationship with Jane's mother, Frances. In fact, she was Frances's godmother. So they'd always been very, very close. And Jane had grown up knowing Mary, visiting Mary. We know that she did this when she was younger. And I think that in many ways, Mary recognised that, yes, okay, Jane had accepted this role, Queen, but that really she wasn't to blame. She'd been forced into it by circumstance. But I think at the same time, she recognised that some form of justice needed to be seen to be done. I think that's why she went ahead with the trial. But I think ultimately, her hand was later forced by subsequent events and she wasn't able to pardon Jane. I think that that may potentially have happened had it not been for later events. But unfortunately for Jane, matters soon spiralled out of her control.
2: Yes, as you say, it was four months later when Jane was finally executed. Tell us about the impetus, the catalyst for that.
3: Soon after Mary succeeded to the throne, she made it clear that she intended to wed. And although there were several candidates suggested for her hand, in reality, there was only ever one suitor that Mary was interested in. And this was her second cousin, Philip of Spain, the son of the Emperor Charles V. And the idea of a Spanish marriage in England was extremely unpopular. And this was partly because... Philip was a Catholic in the same way as Mary, but also perhaps more significantly that he was a foreigner and the English were extremely suspicious of foreigners. And it was much feared that Philip would try to embroil England in foreign wars, as eventually he did. And unbeknown to Mary and indeed to Jane, there were those within the realm who had decided to take up arms in an attempt to oppose the Spanish marriage, and what became known as the Wyatt Rebellion, staged under the auspices of Sir Thomas Wyatt, crucially for Jane. Sadly, her father, Henry Gray, was one of the key conspirators. And again, his motives for becoming involved in the rebellion have been much debated because Mary had already been merciful to Henry Grey, so he'd been very, very briefly imprisoned in the Tower after Jane's deposition, but then released through Mary's good graces. And so, you know, why on earth would he want to become embroiled in a further rebellion? And Jane was in no way involved with the Wyatt Rebellion. It turned out to be a dismal failure And Jane's father, he fled to his estates in the Midlands to try and drum up support. But again, that was a dismal failure too. He was captured and returned to the Tower. But his involvement really sealed Jane's fate because by now the Imperial Ambassador was demanding really that Jane should lose her life. And Mary didn't feel that she had any choice. She was under immense pressure and... Unfortunately, the orders were given for Jane's execution.
2: One of the most moving things about that letter I saw is that on the back it says, written in the first year of our reign. And yet we know she doesn't even live out that year. Tell us about the event of her execution.
3: We don't know exactly when or how Jane found out that she was going to die. But again, I think that this must have come as a great shock to her because even though she had been condemned. As I said earlier, Mary had made it very clear that she intended to spare her life and perhaps even eventually liberate her. So I think that this must have been quite difficult for her to come to terms with. But it's at this point that she recognises that she is going to die. And I think at this point that she decides that she's going to die a martyr to the Protestant faith in which she's always been so fervent And there is one final test left for her to endure because although Mary had realised that she couldn't save Jane's life, she was determined that she could at least save her soul, which unless Jane converted to Catholicism, in Mary's eyes, Jane was doomed to burn in the fires of hell. And so on the 8th of February, 1554, Mary sends her chaplain, Dr John Feckenham, to talk with Jane at the Tower, and he's been tasked with attempting to convert Jane to Catholicism. And again, it's really at this point that Jane shows her true strength of character, because rather than agreeing to convert or meekly submitting to Feckenham's arguments, She engages in this series of debates with him in which she really shows just how steadfast her faith is. And Feckenham, even though he fails in converting Jane, he's really, really impressed by her determined spirit and agrees actually to accompany her when she meets her fate just a couple of days later. So it is on the 12th of February that about 10 o'clock in the morning, Jane watches as her husband, Guilford is led out from his prison quarters in the tower and taken for execution on nearby Tower Hill. Just minutes later, she sees the cart that brings Guilford's butchered remains back into the tower for burial within the chapel and realises that it's her turn next. And I think it's just commendable, really, how she manages to retain her composure. And again, we know that as she walked towards the scaffold, which had been erected in front of the White Tower. So within the confines of the tower, she had her head in her prayer book. She was reading from that, deriving words of comfort. She mounted the scaffold and she made a short speech to the crowds that had assembled to watch her die She says, good people, I am come hither to die and by a law I am condemned to the same. She's very calm and composed up until the moment when she is blindfolded. And it's then that she realised that the block wasn't within her reach and she cries out in panic and desperation. Where is it? What shall I do? And you can't help but feel just the utmost sympathy for this young girl who, until this point, has been so dignified, but just momentarily descends into panic. And we know then that her hands were guided onto the block. She knelt her head down and moments later, her head was severed with a single blow of the axe.
2: It's a very sad tale of a life that was wasted in the end, And perhaps the tragedy of that has been what has appealed so much to historians, but also to kind of myth makers since. I mean, one thinks of her posthumous reputation in things like the Delaroche painting of the 1830s, the execution of Lady Jane Grey, or even actually in the 1980s, Trevor Nunn's film, Lady Jane. She certainly had quite a vivid posthumous existence, if I can put it that way.
3: Absolutely. This has all been part of the myth, really, that Jane has been caught up in. And I find it quite sad in many ways that she's remembered in this way, because her real achievements lie elsewhere. And I feel that she's worthy of being remembered and recognised for her ability and her academic achievements. And unfortunately, I think it's a real shame that she is remembered as being one of history's most tragic victims and for the fact that she lost her life at a young age. And yes, that is a huge tragedy. But I think we shouldn't allow it to overshadow what was, in effect, although a short life, one that accomplished a great deal, and one that shows great intellectual spirit and ability, really.
2: Thank you, Nicola, for really powerfully evoking the life of this temporary and ultimately lost Queen of England. It's been really wonderful to chat with you about her life and her fate.
3: Thank you so much for having me, it's been a brilliant opportunity to be able to share Jane's story and I hope that we can start remembering her in the way in which I think she deserves to be remembered.
2: I
0: feel we had the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. That was an episode of Not Just The Tudors on my feed. Professor Susanna Lipscomb is a complete legend. She's one of my greatest friends and colleagues in the world of history. If you enjoyed it, please head over to Not Just The Tudors, wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe and then rate and review and all that kind of thing. Share it with friends. It just makes a really big difference to us. And we're really, really grateful for you guys doing that. Thank you very much.
3: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad free and watch hundreds